0: Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at MarksDailyApple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at PrimalBlueprint.com.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Very special guest today, an incredible author, Gretchen Rubin, she is the author of several books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, The Four Tendencies, and a new one coming out, Outer Order, Inner Calm, and we're going to talk about a bunch of those. She has an enormous readership, both in print and online. Her books have sold more than 3.5 million copies worldwide in over 30 languages, and she also has a weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where she discusses good habits and happiness with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be talking to you. So you are really a prolific writer and you're putting out so much good self-development, uh, juicy content out there for us. Let's. How did you get into this? Where did you start with your journey here as an author?
2: Well, I started my career in law and I was actually clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I realized that I actually wanted to be a writer. Um, so first I had to switch to writing um, and but and i wrote several books before the happiness project which was came out 10 years ago and which is probably the book many people think that was my first book because like many people it took me 10 years of hard work to become an overnight sensation um that wasn't my first book that was my fourth book um and then everything after that has been very much very explicitly about happiness good habits human nature but really all my books are about human nature that's really my subject is who are we? Why do we do what we do? How can we change if we want to change? Um, that's what fascinates me.
1: Given all of that, uh, all of that material, where, where can we start? I'd love to touch on each one of these books and sort of some of the juice to draw people in because they are so good. Um, maybe we should start with the happiness project or would you like to go with one other?
2: No, let's start with the happiness project. Yeah, that's a great place to start. So in the happiness project, I decided to do a happiness project. I wanted to see if I could make myself happier. Um, like, what would you do? Could it work? And so I did all this research about happiness, and I decided to spend a year, which I thought seemed like long enough that there could be real change, but not so long that it seemed interminable. And I gave you know, 12 months. Each month had a theme, like energy and friends and like that. And each month I gave myself a handful of concrete manageable resolutions to see if I made these changes in my life, could I make myself happier in my work life, you know, um, and uh, in my personal life, all these things. And uh, it turns out I I did make myself happier because I I really tried to pick the things that – you know, contemporary scientists and ancient philosophers would agree are the kinds of things that tend to make people happier. And so I used myself as a guinea pig to see what I could discover about the nature of happiness. And what I found is that for most people, most people are like me, um, there's low hanging fruit. There are things that we can do without a lot of time, energy, or money that really will do, will make us happier. And uh, and so that was the happiness project.
1: Let me Let me interject on the classical philosophy because I have a degree in that and I'm wondering was epic Titus and some other people have some very interesting, like old timey sayings. You're like, wow, they they knew all the way back then. Yes. What are some things that stood out as nuggets that you carried forward from that project? That are like, these are practices that I now employ, or this is an affirmation. You know, what are some nuggets there that you still hold on to from that journey?
2: Well, one is, you know, ancient philosophers definitely put a value on self command. This was an like an ancient. Um, you know, with those philosophers, that was a very, very high value. And just as a person, and this is sort of like one of the things I learned about myself along the way, especially from my book, The Four Tendencies, I'm a person who puts very high value on self-command, sees tremendous value in it, and wants to increase self-command. And so that really, I really respond to that. And also, you know, a lot of things, you know, contemporary scientists sort of prove it in a scientific way. But like ancient philosophers talked about friendship and and bonds with other people as being really at the core of a happy life. And that's definitely something that the science absolutely has confirmed, which is if you want to be happy, you have to have enduring intimate relationships with other people. Um, so a lot of it's inter- – You know, one of the things about happiness is the ideas are too important to be new. If somebody has some shocking revelation, it's probably not true because the greatest minds in history have been thinking about this – for thousands of years. And so part of it is just seeing the same ideas be presented in different ways and sort of through the lenses of different cultures and different times. But then we keep circling back to the same thing, which is, you know, don't procrastinate too much, you know, remember life is short, all these, you know, <laughs> these things are like, yeah, it's still true today, you know?
1: Yeah. And that's, what's great is that you really take all of these, you know, old, not new concepts and, you know, really apply them to the real world, which is really important. I, I invite everybody to check out that book. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, better than before. Um, some of the questions in there were, you know, things like how do I, you know, sometimes I can change a habit overnight. Sometimes I can't, why, you know, um, all these different little questions, uh, uh, to get, 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 let's have a little foray into that, into that discussion.
2: Yeah. One of the things that I noticed um, in in studying happiness and talking to people about happiness is that a lot of times people knew perfectly well what would make them happier. They're like, I know I would be happier if I ate healthfully. I know I would be happier if I exercised. I know I'd be happier if I got more sleep. So then the question is, well, then why aren't you, you know, um, and a lot of times that had to do with the problem of habit change that for some reason people were not able to change a significant habit in their life. And so I became very, very fascinated with the question of how, do, how can we make or break habits? So better than before is about the 21 strategies that people can use to make or break their habits. And sometimes people are like, 21 is too many. Give me the three that work. And, but, <laughs> but, the fact is, um, some work very well for some people and don't work at all for other people. And some we can use it sometimes in our lives and not in other times. And sometimes with an important habit, you might use five or six or seven kinds of strategies simultaneously to change that habit, which is a lot easier. That sounds terribly difficult, but it's actually not that hard to combine strategies. And so it's really good that there are a lot because it means you can pick and choose the ones that, that, strike a chord with you. You know, some people are like, if I put it on the calendar, I do it. And then some people are like, I hate having anything on my calendar. If I put something on the calendar, I immediately don't want to do it. I'm like, either way is fine. That we, you can work with that. Just accept yourself and figure out, well, then what are some other strategies that could work for you? Because sometimes people feel like, well, if I can't do it, there's got to be something wrong with me. And they get very discouraged. And I think, and I usually I'm like, it's not that you can't do it. It's that you're trying to do it in a way that's wrong for you. If you tried to do it a different way, you might have much more success there's a lot of ways to achieve your aims If what you want to do is exercise there's a lot of ways you can do that If you want to eat healthfully there's a lot of things that you can do that can move you closer to that aim and so let's do it in the way that's right for you not try to make you fit into some template of the right way to do it, but figure out how do we how do we um, tailor this to be the kind of thing that suits you and all the strategies then allow you to figure out, okay, this one works for me. This one doesn't work for me.
1: What are some, uh, highlights from your own experience with either changing a habit or some of the people you're working with as you're writing the book or some success stories that you knew of people that successfully were able to finally change a habit because they looked at it in a different way. Can we get some, uh, some detailed examples maybe within there that someone listening might say, Oh, you know what? I, I I resonate with that.
2: Well, a place that comes up where people a lot of times think that there's something wrong with them or that other people are doing something wrong is the strategy of abstaining. So the strategy of abstaining is is a strategy that works very well for some people and not at all for others. So you really have to say to yourself, am I an abstainer? An abstainer is, so when you're facing strong temptation, not weak temptation, a strong temptation for you, um, abstainers are people who find it easier to have none than to have a little bit. That's what I'm like. I can have no cookies, or I can have like 15 cookies. I can't have one cookie. I have not had half a dish of ice cream in my life. I can have none I'm with you on this, by the way. Very I think a lot easily, us... but, yeah. But I can't have a little bit, and it's very, very draining for me to try to manage that. But I can give things up altogether. I, I had, I gave up sugar. I gave up basically all carbs except for um, leaf, you know, vegetables and nuts. And I love it because I'm a total abstainer. It's easy for me to say none. I can't have a little. Moderators, by contrast, are people who get kind of panicky and rebellious if they're told they can't have something. They like to have a little bit. They like to have it sometimes. They'll have a few French fries. You know, this is the person who's like, just keep a, a like a bar of fine chocolate in your desk drawer, and then every day <laughs> or two, you just have one square of fine chocolate, and that'll just sa- satisfy you. I'm like, my whole day would be now, later, one, two, three, four, I might as well have that candy bar at 8 a.m. because otherwise my whole day is just about, I'm going to eat that candy bar. So moderators should have something a little bit. And often people try to do it the way that's not right for them because people will tell you that you're doing it wrong. I'm an abstainer and people constantly say to me, it's not healthy to be so rigid. You shouldn't demonize certain foods. You should follow the 80-20 rule. It's not healthy to be so rigid. And I'm like, I don't understand why you can't just pick a rule and stick to it. Why do you keep violating what you say you want? Why don't you just go cold turkey? It would just be easier never to have it because that's what works for me. And so again, it's like when I realized that I was an abstainer and that I could just give up sugar, I can't tell you what a relief it is. And some people are – they think like, oh, my life – like, Life's too short not to eat a brownie. And I'm like, not eating a brownie makes me so much happier than eating a brownie could ever make me because I just love feeling free of it. I have a tremendous sweet tooth and there was just constantly this nagging buzz in my head about should I have it, should I not have it, whatever. And it's like, oh, I just love being free from it. And then when you don't have it, you don't want it. So I'm like, uh, I could sit by, you know, a tray of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies and it's like, I don't care because I don't eat it. I just don't eat it. So it's fine for me. But that is not right for everyone. Um, and also some people want to be abstainers, but they don't want to be abstainers to the degree that I do. And for those people, again, there's a way to manage that with it, with habits. And that's the planned exception. And this is where you keep your self-command. You make a rule and stick to it for yourself. So it's not like you're just walking down the street and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm outside. I Fancy that. I happen to be walking by my favorite donut store. Who could resist the freshly baked donut? I better go in and have one, even though I say that I'm eating healthfully. And then you've broken your rule for yourself, and then you feel lousy. A planned exception is when you're like, you know what? Saturday is my birthday, and what I want to eat on my birthday is one of those freshly baked donuts from my favorite donut shop. Saturday morning, I am going to go there with my cup of coffee. I'm going to have that donut. It's going to be amazing. What a great treat to celebrate my birthday. I've planned it in advance. I look forward to it with anticipation. I enjoy it as it happens, and I look back on it with pleasure because I've kept my rule for myself. It's a planned exception because we're grownups. We can make the rules for ourselves. But, you know, it's like it's your birthday or like it's Thanksgiving dinner. It's not the holidays, which really is like two and a half months. You know, when people (laughs) are like, oh, it's the holidays. It's like, "Okay, well, that's not a planned exception. Um, So so there are ways and this is what I explore and better than before is How can you think about habits and set them up in the way that strikes a chord with you? And like, maybe you want to be an abstainer. Maybe you want to be a moderator. Maybe you want to have planned exceptions. Like there's a million ways to do these things. um, Once you realize that you have to figure out what works for you.
1: No, it's amazing. And your description of yourself and being an abstainer is absolutely me. Uh, that philosophy, that's exactly how I think. But I often look sideways at people who can just have the three fries or the and that's—and the little piece of chocolate in the drawer. I'm exactly like you. I was like, that just won't even be a part of my life ever. I can't. It's just like kind of all or nothing there. And like you said, i when you're nothing on it, you really don't want it. And I can then sit in front of a tray of donuts and not even care. But I think if I had a little bite every day of a donut, it would be hard to sit in front of that effing tray. So, you know, I am definitely an abstainer personality, but what I love about it is again, going deep and exploring the nature behind each one of us and how we approach certain things in order to get even more control of our lives and be more successful and healthier and happier. So I just, I love that whole expose and, um, yeah, that that's just, it's just a really wonderful book. And then I guess, you know, you have similar, in four tendencies, again, it's you you feel like people fit into four tendencies. And that, that again, is a multi-investigation into understanding human nature um, about how we respond to expectations. And, you know, when I hear the word expectations, one of the things I think of is um, my stepfather's Danish. He's the happiest person I've ever met. Danish people are considered to be the happiest people in the world. <laughs> and when they've studied them, at least some of the feedback and the, the things that I've read is that... it's the way that they look at expectations. And one of the things is that they don't really have any, and that's why they're happy. And that's not to say that you don't promise someone you're going to be there and they're not going to get upset that you bailed on them. It's that if something goes wrong, if plans get screwed up, they go with the flow, they don't argue with reality. And that makes them happier. And I thought that was such an interesting... And my stepfather is exactly like that. You could have uh, something just completely blow up a whole scenario and he will just calmly not even be affected by it it's like, all right, well, what do we do now? Let's move forward. And it's just such a peaceful, lovely way of looking at expectations. So I'd love to get into a little bit of the four tendencies and these, these four categories here that you have.
2: Absolutely. So, um, yeah, this divides people into four types, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And there's a quiz at gretchenrubin.com slash quiz. It's a, like 2 million people have taken this free quiz. It's very short, Um, If you want to like get an answer, but the fact is from, I'll give a brief description and most people know what they are from the brief description. They usually know what a lot of other people in their life are too, because it's very easy (laughs) to tell, Um, but there is a quiz if you want to take a quiz. So as you said, it divides people into these four types according to expectations, uh, whether they meet an expectation or resist an expectation. This sounds really boring as I get into it, but I promise like it pays off in like very juicy information. So we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline, a request from a friend, and inner expectations, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to get back into the practice of meditation. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. So they're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they'll do it. No problem. If it fails their standard, they will resist. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into the four tendencies when a friend told me, I don't understand it. I I." I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, why? Well, because when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, outer expectations, no problem. When she's trying to go on her own, inner expectation, it's a challenge. Then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. Typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they won't sign up for a 10 a.m. yoga class on Saturday because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's <laughs> expecting me to show up is going to annoy me. So, those are the four attendances.
1: That's just very interesting about the way that we look at um, obligation or a sense of duty to someone else. And this is why, you know, I have this conversation with people at my gym sometimes. There are the people that are like, I will not work out on my own. I, I can't like I have to go to class. I'm the exact opposite. I'm like anti the class more of like I'm self-motivated. I have no problem with that, but I have more of a problem with committing to like some group class. <laughs> so not, you know, it's just funny that there are these, um, what are some other good examples of, um, things that fall within this category, like real world, uh, maybe one or two examples of these four categories within a particular subject or expectation and how they would all respond.
2: Um, Let's see. Well, what's something where you could go through all four? Um, well, like, let's take exercise. Let's say exercise. So uh, if an upholder puts it on the calendar, it's going to happen. So I'm like, okay, every day between 7.45 and 8 a.m. I'm going to go for a 40-minute walk in Central Park. Okay, it's on my calendar. I'm going to do it. I don't need somebody looking at my shoulder. I don't need to, like, use an app to don't break the chain. I just go because I, I I've just made up my mind that I'm going to do it. And here's the thing. Maybe you want to meet me for coffee at 8 a.m. And I'm like, well, you know, that's not a good time for me because that's when I go for my walk. Maybe I will, but I don't know. I may have to get my walk in instead. Um, questioners are like, okay, is this the most efficient form of exercise? Maybe I should do high-intensity weight training. Maybe I should do interval training. Maybe I should be doing cardio. Why should I do it? Oh, you're telling me I should exercise this way. Why this way? They want to know why. They want to have justification. Why in the morning? Why at night? Why a mile? Why an hour? um, they often love to customize. They like to know that something's the best possible way for them. They're often interested in like anything that's tracking them or they love data. And so it's like, they're very, you know, like something like the Apple watch, which is like, Oh, you know, this many steps and this is what your heart is doing. They love that kind of thing typically. Yeah. And
1: putting macros, things like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Then there are obligers and obligers need outer accountability. So in outer accountability, you could be taking a class, but see, sometimes obligers think that what they need is the social element. It's not really the social element. It's the idea of outer expectation. And there, and for instance, there are things that gyms can do that can make it better, more, more helpful for obligers. For instance, I was talking to somebody at a fancy gym in New York and she said, oh, they, I have always been saying to my clients, um, oh, I'll be here next week. But now I'm going to start saying, I'll see you next week because it's like I'm expecting you to come. Or when j- many obligers say it works very well for them where you have to sign up for a class and if you don't show up, somebody else misses the chance to take that class. So by not showing up, you've really sh- shoved out somebody and so they will come because they're like, well, I don't want to be the loser who who ghosts and then somebody else doesn't get the chance to exercise. For some, the obligers are very different in what they, what kind of things work. For some, paying is very makes them outer account gives a great form of outer accountability. For some, that's not useful. Some can think about their future self. Well, future Gretchen will be very disappointed if I don't make if I just never go to this if I never move forward in this goal. But for some, that doesn't work. So you have to if you're an obliger, or you're working with an obliger, you may have to do some experimenting to find out. Sometimes it's like I need to be a better mother or a better employee or a better spouse or a better friend, and so I'm going to do this because that helps me be better for others. As an I'm an upholder. That 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 kind of an, that argument does not respond with does not resonate with me at all. I wouldn't exercise because it makes me a better mother. I exercise because I want to. I don't do it for somebody else, but for an obliger, that might be very compelling. And then rebels have to think about why they want what they want. I love exercising. I have a healthy, fit body. I've always been athletic. I love going to a class. I like the music. I like learning the new moves. I like the intensity. People think I can't do it. Oh, I'm this petite little woman. Everybody's amazed that I'm like a bodybuilder. You know, people think, uh, you know, they're surprised that I've run so many marathons. Somebody said I couldn't do it, but I said, I'll show you. You know, I love being outside. I love the wind of my hair. I'm going to exercise during the workday when I'm supposed to be behind my desk. Ha ha ha. You know, um, often rebels <laughs> like, they like a lot of choice and freedom. So they often do well, like joining a big gym with like tons of options so they can just do what they feel like today. I feel stiff. I'm going to do yoga today. I feel restless. I'm going to run on a treadmill. Um, or they, um, they might have the the schedule of many different exercise classes, um, so that they can go anywhere they want. Um, and then they should really tap into why this is what they want. I love, I love, I love biking. I lo- I would never, I would never go without biking because I love biking. That's who I am. That's what I want to be. And so you can see how you could actually get in someone's way and make it harder for them to stick to a habit if you're talking to them in the wrong way. Um, that's not it. And what about children?
1: If you identify these tendencies and even children right or people that you're teaching et cetera. this could be this is extremely helpful
2: yes well and it can be very poignant too because you realize how people can just they can if you don't understand the four tendencies you can really uh you can really get in people's way and one of the most kind of a sad example i heard of was a guy of my age who had loved soccer as a child and played a lot of soccer was very good at it um was a goalie and he had a coach he loved, and then a new coach came in, and the goal, and the coach was like, "These are the these are the um, exercises and drills that everybody on the team has to do, had to do." And my friend, a questioner, went to him and said, "I think I should do different drills because I'm a goalie." Now, if this coach had said, "You know, you might think that, but I have studied the training regimens of the top teams, and what we what they found is that." These are the key drills that no matter what position you play are essential. It's going to work on your, you know, blah, 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 blah. This is why this is why this is right for you. No, the coach said, I'm the coach and everybody on my team does the same drills. And so my friend quit because he's like, that's totally arbitrary. It's an inefficient use of my time. You're not like taking into account that I'm different from everybody else. I can't put up with this. So he quit. Yeah. A five minute conversation could have changed the whole direction of his childhood.
1: Yeah, or of a work scenario or of an employee sticking with you or taking the promotion or whatever. Yeah, no, it's it's so it's so fascinating. I love I love the way you you dip in all these and that's why I'm so grateful you went through uh some of your books with us and kind of gave us a little little cliff notes to them because they're all so valuable in so many ways and rereadable and re referable and and um almost kind of constantly learning uh Let's talk about your your brand new book that just came out. It's called yes. Outer Order, Inner Calm: Declutter and Organize to Make Room for More Happiness. What got you started on this subject?
2: Well, it's interesting because I'd been noticing ever since I started writing about happiness 10 years ago that whenever people talked about things related to outer order or, you know, declutteri- decluttering, organizing all that, there was like a special energy. Like people were very emotional and there was kind of a charge to it. That I didn't perceive when we were talking about other things, even things that were very, very important and very close to people's hearts. And I always thought, like, why is that? Well, you know, we can all agree that in the context of a happy life, something like a crowd, crowded coat closet or a messy desk is trivial. And yet, over and over, people would be like, "Oh my gosh." Um, and and a friend of mine said, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. I'm like, I know how that feels. Um, and, and I always was just wanted to explore that. So I thought, okay, I want to write a little playful, accessible book that's going to kind of talk about why we – not everybody feels this, but most people feel this connection and why we feel it. And then how do we create and maintain that kind of outer order because it really does for most people give them a sense of calm but also a sense of focus and even a sense of possibility. Um, so it's very disproportionate yield. Um, and so, um, so I wanted to tackle that. Uh, oh, and what a pleasure it was to write this book.
1: What were some of the other uh, set, you know, self sayings or declarations that people made or that you heard around this topic. Like, you know, your friend that was like, I just, you know, now that my kitchen's clean or now I can do this. It's, it's, this has to become before this usually sometimes, or the other way around. There's people that just don't feel right about life or starting a new project until everything in their house is clean. Right. There's there's, there's,
2: that's procrastinating you got to be careful. There's helpful preparation, absolutely, which is, you know, you're like, I'm going to clean off the surface of my desk so I can start the annual report. But procrastinate clearing is I'm supposed to start the annual report, but I'm looking at this bookshelf. And although it's been like this for three years, suddenly <laughs> I feel that I cannot move forward until I deal with this bookshelf. Or I feel like I have to vacuum every floor in my house before I can tackle this. You have to be very careful about procrastinating, um, but yeah, there are certain things that people would say over and over. And one that really is kind of paradoxical is that because my sister calls me kind of a happiness bully because I will be very insistent with people like trying to make them be happier. And I'm off always trying to get my friends to help me clear their clutter because I love helping people clear clutter. And over and over, and I've experienced this myself. Is okay, like let's say we're cleaning out someone's closet and. We're taking a two big bags, three big bags of clothes to take to donation to the thrift store, and the person will look in the closet and say, I feel like I have so much more to wear, which is obviously not literally true because they've gotten rid of a lot, but they right. feel more abundant in their, oppor- you know, in their choices because they like everything they have. They know what they have. It all works for them, and so – it's funny how by clearing clutter, a lot sometimes people worry that they're going to feel stripped or sterile if they clear clutter. But in fact, it, it, it's not trying to get you to be minimal. It's not trying to get you to have a capsule wardrobe. If you, some people are simplicity lovers, some people are abundance lovers. Maybe you love abundance. Even if you love abundance, you don't want the cord to nowhere. In the corner of your office. Like just get rid of that. You know, you don't need that bread maker that you haven't used in five years. Like get rid you don't need those empty wire hangers that are just taking up room in your closet. Get rid of it. You could still be left with abundance. But you will feel like you have more abundance when you get rid of the things that you don't use, don't need, don't love. So that has surprised me how often that comes up.
1: Well, what's the argument for that? I mean, I'm imagining the person that's like, you know what? I don't have organized drawers, da-da-da-da-da, and I'm happy. Like, uh, really tell me, I guess mean, this is the the one the, the organizer from the past that needs the reasons <laughs> it needs to be logical, but tell me why I should go down this road. What is it about it that's going to make me happier if I'm already feeling happy and I have a bunch of clutter? I'm- oh. We venture to say they'd it. be happier,
2: don't, but then yeah. don't do it. Then don't okay. do it. If you feel like it wouldn't make any difference, don't do it. If nobody else cares, don't do it. There's no reason to do it except if it's going to make you happier, healthier, more productive, or more creative. Like people are like, why should you make your bed? I'm like, there's no reason to make your bed unless you feel like you feel happier when you make your bed. A lot of people feel better when they make their bed. They just for a variety of reasons, they feel more in control of themselves. They like the neatness of the room. It makes it more inviting to come in at night. There's a million reasons to do it. If you're like I never make my bed and it makes me happy or I don't question or say this. I, why? Make, why make the bed? You just unmake it every night. It just drives me crazy. I'm like, then don't do it. There's no reason to do it. If you're like, la la la. and perfectly happy with things the way they are. I'm like, then do something else. This is not something to do for its own sake. This is only if you feel like it's going to help you get closer to an and aim. But the fact is for most people, they do feel better. They do want it. Uh, they do feel like their life is better when they don't have so much when they can actually close the drawer to the chest of drawers without jamming it shut or where they can easily hang up a coat. Most people feel better, but not everybody does. Um, some people are truly clutter blind. They just don't care. Um, and then in case I'm like, but then don't cause it's only if it serves you. So
1: in, in the process of de you know, decluttering and organizing, does this is this a helpful thing in terms of conflict or what other areas of someone's life is this beneficial other than just happiness although lack of conflict would lead to that but i'm thinking that that could be a possible scenario
2: Absolutely, because it turns out this is a major source of conflict among people, among like within people in a household, like family members or romantic partners or roommates, and then also people at work. Um, because people just have different levels of order that they feel comfortable in. And a lot of times my order is your disorder, or, you know, uh, people just want to get to different places or they have different habits. And that can really, uh, you can really get annoyed with each other. And one of the interesting things that I found is that if you are annoyed by someone else's clutter, one of the things you can do is really get or- outer order for yourself with your own things that you can control really get order because sometimes those people get swept along. It's not uncommon for someone to see someone else establishing outer order. And then they kind of get drawn in and they want it too. because for most, as I said, for most people, it's very attractive. They get it. They see it. They want more of it themselves, but sometimes they don't. That's the fact of the matter. Some people are like, eh, no, I don't care. Um, but even, but the the kind of the magical thing is that when you're have true order with your own things a lot of times what other people do annoys you less even if they don't change you're less annoyed um and so the conflict is diminished even though all that the only person that you've changed is yourself Uh, and it's very common too for people to think their own stuff is fine but your stuff is really annoying me like, it's like when you making it like when you're like clicking a pen, if you're clicking a pen, it's not annoying. If somebody else is clicking a pen, you're like, Oh my gosh, why is this person such a barbarian? <laughs> you're cluttered. Like I've had a project out on the dining room table for, for a month. And that's perfectly reasonable because at any point I'm going to finish this project. And it's very important for me to just like leave it there so I can pick it up when I can you left some crumbs on the counter. Like, I don't understand like why, how you can expect us to live like this, you know? So a lot of times people are really pointing at each other where it's like, okay, we'll get your own stuff in order. And then you might feel differently. And also when you get your own stuff in order, just kind of everything changes. If it, you know, your are when you're the, the, the opportunities and challenges that other people will feel will be different. Like if you clean off, Uh, let's say you share an office with somebody. If you clean off everything that belongs to you on the side table that you both share, well, then the stuff that belongs to the other person kind of looks more out of place. And so that person might be like, oh, well, you know what? I should get rid of my junk on there too. I thought we were just dumping our stuff on the side table, which is fine. I don't care. But if you've cleaned off all your stuff, I was like, okay, well, I'll just put my stuff away too. So sometimes we can make bigger changes that go beyond ourselves, even just by changing ourselves.
1: I think that resonates with a lot of people that resonates with me and it's not like you're passively, su- you know, aggressively suggesting <laughs> that the side <laughs> table, that the side table be clean, but I do, I, I like yeah. that. And also it, it's so true that when uh, we got to look in often that, you know, it's that shadow effect. If we're ripping on someone for something uh, we're going to point yes. the finger back. Right. So that makes total sense. Yeah. You just attack your stuff first. Yeah. Um at, first of all, l- love all of your work. Of course, you can get everything on Amazon or go to gretchenrubin. dot com. Tell us about your podcast and and how we can benefit more from you know all of the research and, and wonderful writings of
2: yours. Oh uh, yeah, yes. So, Happier with Gretchen Rubin is a weekly podcast that I do with my sister Elizabeth Kraft, who's a very successful television writer and producer in Hollywood. Um, and so each week we talk about you know, spoiler alert, how to be happier. So we talk about habits and happiness hacks and. Uh, we take listener questions and talk about happiness, stumbling blocks, and really things that you could try at home, things that don't take a lot of time or energy or money, but just the ordinary things that an ordinary person could do as part of their ordinary routine that can just boost happiness. Um, and so that's really, really, really fun. We've been doing that for four years.
1: That's excellent. And we will put all of the links to connect with you, uh, your website and your books on our in our show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with?
2: You know, just the thought that there's no one right way. There's no magic one size fits all solution. And if something's not working for you, don't beat yourself up. Don't feel discouraged. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you. Just say, how's another, you know, what's another way? If I can't get up early and exercise, maybe I could exercise in the afternoon. Maybe it turns out I'm not a morning person, I'm a night person. I can change everything to suit myself. And then that's probably the way that you're going to have a lot more success.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see everyone next week on the Primal Blueprint Podcast.
0: Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or P.S., And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress. Whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind, we're constantly triggering the fight or flight mode in modern life. in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.